Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson podcast, Mike here, just at the top of this episode to give a quick introduction to today's guest. Our guest on today's episode is Akech Makur Chuat. Akech is an Australian football player who plays for the Richmond team of the AFL Women's Division, and Akech generously gave up some of our time. After planning this episode for nearly a year, it got pushed back a fair bit because of COVID lockdown in 2020, but we finally got round to it. This was, yeah, a few months ago now, and this is a fantastic story. Uh, Akech was born in South Sudan, and she talks about her experience growing up uh, for 12 years in a refugee camp in Kenya and then moving over to Australia. She talks a lot about football and why she loves it and making history as part of the Richmond Premiership team in 2020. This is a great episode. Uh, It was a real pleasure meeting Akech, so uh, I hope you enjoy it. We have spoken to many people who are associated with Australian football. Recently, we spoke to Tony Armstrong, a former AFL player who is now a sports presenter for the ABC. We've also spoken to people like Wayne Schwoss, who had quite an amazing story to tell about his career playing football. Mark Howard is another football-related person that we have had on this show. Hannah Mouncey, another AFLW player that has been on this show. There are lots of football-related people who have appeared on Willosophy in the past, and I implore you to go and listen to all of them. Scroll up on your feed of Willosophy episodes. There are plenty of fantastic episodes to listen to, and we would love for you to check some more out after you listen to this one. Will does have some shows coming up on the 12th and 13th of June at the Wagga Wagga Civic Theatre. That is his show, Will Eagle. You can get tickets online. Uh, Just search for Will Eagle shows. I think they will come up. And of course, you can support Willosophy, patreon.com slash willosophy. Uh, This show would not exist without the help of all the generous people who help keep the lights on here and help keep Willosophy coming out uh, week by week. So thank you so much if you have already contributed to the Patreon and uh, if you intend to, uh, that would be fantastic. Anyway, I will stop rambling and I really do hope you enjoy this fantastic episode of Willosophy with Akech Makur Short. Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and this is how the show starts. I ask my guest who they are. So who are you? Um, my name is Akeem Markur Um I play at Richmond um, in the AFLW. Um, I am a young South Sudanese woman um, who obviously is Australian now, um, but almost I'm also Kenyan. I grew up in Kenya for many years, so I call myself the global citizen. So, yeah. Okay. Well, that's what I love. So this is a good start. I'm sure we're going to have nothing to talk about for the next hour with all that. How should we start? It's, it's an interesting place to start. Let's start with football. I, I, let's start with football and work backwards. So uh, AFLW coming into the finals at the moment, a season just completed. Uh, tell me about women's football in Australia and uh, the state of AFLW, what it means, you know, and how it's growing. Um, yeah, um, obviously footy, footy season's finished this week, so the body's um, 
the body's kind of in shock that footy footy's over. Um, but it's it's going to come back around real quickly. Um, and yeah, I'm just really excited for for the women that are all the clubs that are in finals at the moment as well. Um, they start their campaign this week, so. Um, yeah, it's um, it must be great for for them because I've played finals footy um, with my home club Swan District back in the days, and um, I just remembered that final fever and how how amazing it is. So I can imagine how big this week will be for you know, especially the young kids that have never played finals before. They've just come out from being drafted into a season and now playing finals. So um, yeah, it's just really really exciting for them and. Obviously us, we're just going to sit back and, and watch um, um, the girls and really support them because, um, yeah, the IFLW competition, um, as women, we're finding that we got to support each other. We might be from different sites and we wear different jerseys, but at the same same time, we we got a, we got the same challenges. And, you, you know, we, the one thing we have in common is the, the love that we have for football. Um, and, and, yeah, it's, 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 it's amazing. Um, and I think the the growth has been really um, just incredible. I think this year has really set the benchmark for where the competition is heading um, and where it's going to go. And I think it's made a lot of people really, really exciting. You know, we have the um, the young kids that are coming in and just blowing the competition um, just just out of the window, and that just makes it really exciting. Um, as for my Tigers girls, um, we had a better season this year, um, and it was for, for us from the beginning. It was a, the process. It was about the process. It wasn't about outcomes, but it was about the process and how we actually go about that process. And I think we executed that very well. Um, and our coaches have just been really phenomenal in in supporting that growth in us as individuals, but also as a team. Um, and to get you know a win on the road to get our first win down in Geelong and then to get a win in Pound Road. Um, that was just incredible. And to be a part of that history, um, I'm still pinching myself because I know I'm going to be telling my future children in the future that, um, yeah, I was a part of the first ever Richmond AFLW um, win after two seasons, I think. So, yeah. And, and, for, and for the rest of us, it is just nice to see a Richmond team that doesn't automatically win the premiership. So <laughs> if you guys could just wait a couple of years before the women's team dominates everybody else as well, that'd be good for uh, the rest of us who barrack for other teams. But what is that culture like at Richmond? Like this is your second AFLW team and I'm sure we'll explore a bit of that journey. But uh, what is it like coming to a place like Richmond that obviously in the men's competition has really been, you know, the leader of the competition, both off-field and on-field in so many different ways. Is it an interesting place to walk into, that culture? Um, yeah, it's. Um, I didn't really know how big Richmond was until I started playing at the VFL um, there. Um, you see it from the outside. And for me, I'm a young kid coming from WA, so I was pretty removed from a lot of the Victorian clubs. I saw them and it was like, great, um, but it wasn't until I actually started playing there as a as as a as a as a you know a young woman. I was like, wow, this is this is incredible. You know, the fans, um, the Tiger Army is just they're just incredible. They they love you for for who you are. Um, they take you for everything that you are, and um, they're just incredible. Um, you know passionate devoted fans um and then you go into the club and we got amazing leaders like peggy um brendan gale and what really shook me about you know those two in particular but then we had a another great man in neil Barnes who was just a part of our program from day one 
Um, it's just the care that they have for every single person at the club. Um, it doesn't matter where you work in the what which department or what what area you're in. They know your name. Um, and when you're walking around and Brendan Gale's calling your name, hi, Kedge, you get really sh- taken back because you're like, wow, this is a CEO that really understands their club and, and what why we exist as as a football club and the same goes for Peggy. Um, she's so active on, on Twitter. She's always supporting us. She comes to all our pracky games and just to see that support from those people, it just really makes being a Richmond fan really easy and it makes you, you know, give everything to the club on and off the field because, you know, these these people are just leading um from 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 front really. Um so um, yeah, we were just really lucky. Um, the the men's department in Livo and um, Damien Hardwick, we always pass by and have really good conversations with them. Um, they're just so supportive of everything that we're doing. And and for me, I, I, I pinch myself and I'm just like, wow, I get to have this opportunity where I get to interact with, you know, these movies and shakers of, of this game as a whole. And they're so invested in our program as well. So, um, yeah, it's just I think the culture they've really set sets the benchmark, and I think that's why they've been very successful. Because because for them it's been a process, you know, things were not well from the beginning, you know, and they've had to work very hard to get the club to where it is now. And it, you know, it takes that care and it takes that commitment, and it also takes you know understanding what the needs of the community is. And I think that's why they're so involved in it, in everything that they do and. Um, yeah, I just I just love being a Richmond player, and it's been yeah the last three years have just been um, just amazing in my football chapter, being a part of that. So it must be an incredible time to be a, a woman in football. Uh, you know, it I, I know as a football fan, somebody who's grown up, you know, loving the game, adoring the game, my favourite sport in the entire world, without a doubt. And you know, played two games a weekend every weekend when I was a kid, and you know, absolutely loved it, and saw how passionate women were for the game but there was all this always this idea that you could sort of play football with the boys until you were you know 9 10 11 12 but as soon as puberty kicked in there was some awkwardness around you know boys and girls playing in the same team and it seemed that girls were funneled into other sports and what we found in the first few years of the AFLW was that a lot of the players had returned from other sports. You talk about Erin Phillips, who'd become a, you know, a, a basketballer in America, and, you know, played at the Olympics, had come back to the sport after being almost forced away from it for a great period of time. Now we have these young women who don't have to stop. They, you know, can be 12, 13, 14, 15, and just continually keep playing and then join the competition. And as you said, all these incredible young women who immediately come into it and make a mark on the competition now because they've never had to to have an interrupted it must just be so exciting i think to see the potential of this competition um yeah i think you were, were so spot on like it's you know the, these these young new young kids i call them they're just a special breed um they come they they've as you said before they've never they don't get interrupted they've played oskick throughout to you know the the nap league competition um to now aflw um competition and it just makes the competition just really, really exciting. And, you know, there's going to be more to come. You know, we have a young gun in our team, Ellie McKenzie. She was our number one draft pick this year. And um, she just comes with this big 
swagger and just this big confidence and it's not bad confidence but it's just confidence in who she is and how she reads the game and how she knows the game and how much she just loves football and you can just tell that this is just a kid that just loves football just wants to get there get her hands dirty palm people off um and it's just it's incredible to see that people are taking you know looking at those people and going wow this is this is the future of of this competition and there's so many girls like her um that are just running around there so um it makes all girls like myself um really exciting um excited because you know i'm not i'm not going to stay in football forever but i know i'm going to be i'm going to be a fan one day just standing on the sideline and going um yeah we've we've pretty much kind of started um the race and you guys we've handed the button over to you girls and you girls are going to now go off and um yeah just bring new heights to it and it's going to it's going to bring you know that equality um conversations even bigger and, and better because it means that you know these young women needs to be looked after so that they can stay in the game so that the game is sustainable um and, and stuff like that so yeah it's exciting times uh, it must be very exciting to be a pioneer, part of something that you can clearly see is going to be an incredible pathway for women generations in front of you. So do you have a sporting philosophy? I ask people on this show about whether they have you know, a life philosophy, and um, we're going to definitely get to your life because it's such a fasc- fascinating journey to get you to the point where you're playing AFLW, but do you have a sporting philosophy? Is there some sort of mantra that you have that you channel your sport through? Um, man, my mantra changes every season, it seems, at the moment. Um, COVID changed a lot of my mantras that I had in the past. Um, you know, a lot of, uh, when I was young, I just relied on my talent to just get me to, to the things that I needed to do. I just had a lot of athleticism. I just had a lot of, um, you know, natural abilities as an athlete that, you know, a lot of people don't have. So I kind of relied on that. And I think as I got older, I've started to realize that, you know, sometimes talent it doesn't do it just by itself. Then, then I need to have a bit of work, work ethic and some resilience as well because, you know, things do get really challenging and, and tough. And especially my, my football journey has been interrupted um, where I was drafted and then I got delisted and then I had to move to Victoria away from my family um, to come and pursue this journey that I didn't even know about in this big city that I knew only my my sister and her children um, and then to come here and to try and basically start from fresh again to try and make myself my way back to the AFLW um, was a bit challenging but I think you know the, getting that self-understanding of what what I would need to do to get to that next level. Um, It was just, you know, finding that that extra, just that extra grit, as they say in the Australian way, always you got to find that extra grit, just that that extra determination, that extra resilience and just up your work ethic. And I think that's what I live by at the moment because I realised that my talent wasn't just going to cut it. Um, and I think COVID's really helped with that as well, where, um, yeah, I just, just worked a lot harder. I worked a lot harder on my fitness um, in the gym. And, um, yeah, I'm better off for it. And I think 
um, yeah, I've got a few exciting years ahead of me. So, yeah, that's what I live by. Uh, okay, so t- talk to people about the idea of overcoming a challenge because you get drafted, like you said, you're a West Australian, you get drafted to uh, the local Western Australian AFLW club and then you play and then you are delisted. Now, it must be very exciting, firstly, to initially you know be involved in the competition. That must be you know, super exciting. But the idea that you then, it comes to a premature end Talk me through that period of time in your life and how you decided to regroup and give it another go. Um, yeah, it was it was in- interesting. I wasn't actually expecting to be drafted, if I'm being honest with you, um, just because I've I, I was only into I think my third year of footy, I think third or fourth year, and I was just I was really loving it. I was at Swan District, and those guys were just phenomenal. Um, and yeah, Fremantle drafted me. I was their last pick, and um, yeah, I kind of was, it took a while to set in because I was like, I, I grew up as a West Coast fan and I'm going to need to. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do, but this is just really tricky. I was the biggest people, West Coast. People who don't follow football don't know how big a deal what you've just said is, but it is a big deal. <laughs> it was such a big deal. Even my family members were like, we don't know what's happening. But anyways. Um, and they're like, okay, you're the biggest West Coast fan we know. How are you going to play for Fremantle? And I was like, look, this is an opportunity and I'm going to have to take it I can't refuse it obviously and I think what what people don't realize as soon as you walk into a football club things just automatically change it doesn't really matter what jumper you're wearing there's this this vibe about football club that just draws in and a lot of a lot of the time it's the fans and their passion that they have um, for for the club and um, I got to put my my West Coast hat to the side real quick because I had to buy into the club. I had to buy into, you know, what we were doing and I was going to be wearing the purple jumper that season. Um, and I and I really took it on and I really wore it with pride. And um, yeah, it was, it was just interesting. It was just, and for me, it was about the opportunity of being, you know, one of the first inaugural AFLW players. You know, we, I was a part of history, a history that's going to be forever stay with me by accident you know and I was like cool um, let me just write this this awesomeness and yeah we went in the season um, things didn't really go our way that year we didn't uh, we only won one game and and then yeah I was was just big high and then it was obviously I got my exit meeting today so it was pretty much this time that that year um, where I had my exit meeting and they told me that I was gonna wasn't gonna get offered another contract and it was um yeah, it was really sad um, just because um, I was very young um, and I was like, I deserved a second opportunity just like a lot of people did. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a sporting club. It's a business. Um, you know, they're going to do what they're going to do. And I realized this later. I was a bit I was a bit like taken back and it took took a couple of weeks. And um, yeah, I just kind of just had this mentality of just, you know what? My whole life's been about setbacks um, since the day I was born, really. Um, since the day mum conceived me. So I was like, I'm pretty sure this one hurdle is not going to be pretty much doom anything. You know, it's just, um, I, and what I really turned that into later was that somebody just said no. And it was how I actually just had to turn that no into a yes somewhere else. And that's what I just basically did. I went back to Swan District. I sat down with my amazing um, coach, Nicole Graves, um, who has just been a phenomenal woman in my career all these years. And I just was like, what do we do? 
Um, we had a meeting with my manager, um, Anthony Van Wilden, who's just been incredible, just an incredible man that just has helped guide my career um, to, to basically now. And he, yeah, we just kind of went back to the drawing board, came up with a plan, had a really good season that year. Um, and then Nicole cut up all my tapes. <laughs> she's so cute. She's very tech savvy. Um, and then she sent them to all the Victorian clubs. Um, and then, yeah, Carlton called and they said, look, we're very interested. How, how about a kid comes and play in the VFLW and then hopefully we can give her an opportunity. And I was like, well, that sounds promising. Um, I didn't know anything about Victoria. My mum was very sceptical when I told her I'm going to Victoria. She was like, no, you can't move to Melbourne. And I was like, yeah, mum, I'm going to move. I was 25. I was like, I'm going to move. And she was like, okay, cool. So she finally gave me the blessing. And then, yeah. I, mean, I love that, like, you've made it from South Sudan to Australia. But the idea of going from Western Australia to Melbourne is a little bit too much. <laughs> Just without her. Like, it was, if I had to move with her, I, wouldn't, I don't think it would have been a problem. But I think the thought of me being by myself, she was like, I don't know about this um but yeah I was I needed her blessing and she gave me her blessing and um yeah I'm just so glad I made that decision because the last three years have just changed my whole entire perspective I've grown up um I'm very independent now I live by myself I cook for myself mom calls every day to check if I'm eating um um, to make sure that I'm crossing the road I'm looking right and left I'm like mom I'm not a child I'm 28 um, but yeah that's that's basically how I overcame that hurdle and then um, came played in the VFLW um, and then um, yeah moved to Richmond and then I got my second shot at AFLW and here I am it's a it's a fantastic story and I, I love, you know, I mean, there'd be so many people listening to this who've had that no from somebody and the idea of being able to take that no from that one person and say, well, I'm going to turn that into a yes from somebody else, I think is an incredible message. So, okay, now let's do the big rewind. You know, I mean, the life story is such a incredible story of how you managed to be in Western Australia in the first place. So can we go back, like you said, to the moment of conception? Well, not the moment. We'll, we'll get your mum on to talk about that at another time. But <laughs> tell me about a, a little bit about uh, your story of making it to Australia. Um, yeah, my story started um, back in, in South Sudan. Um, and yeah, it was a very interesting time. Um, when mom was a month pregnant, um, she didn't actually know she was pregnant. Um, my dad got killed um, in a conflict alongside, I think, 12 of his basically brothers and cousins and um, people that were in his village at the time. So he was the, the chief of his people and... Um, the, they, there was a raid in their village and they basically took this raid, they took all everything, all the cattles, all the things that were there, basically lived off and dad and, and a few of his brothers and cousins took off and I guess trying to go and retrieve this stuff and they basically never came back and um, yeah, it was a very big loss um, for, for the church people um, but also for my mum and his his other wives so when dad was alive, he was married to seven wives. So in the South Sudanese culture, that's totally normal. And especially him being the paramount chief of his people. Um, he was pretty much the mayor. He was pretty much the man in charge. And um, yeah, women just wanted to be in his life. And there were women coming left, right and centre. Um, and yeah, he ended up having seven wives. Um, and they all lived in a compound um, as co-wives. Mum was the first wife. And yeah, so three of his wives were all pregnant at the time of his burial. So 
um, they obviously found out all at the same time. And then, um, yeah, eight months later, we were we were all born, but we were born months apart. So I'm the youngest of the three girls. So they're all we're all three girls, um, and we are all called a catch. So my other sisters got two other sisters that all call a catch, um, and then Sasunis culture it's basically means the last of that generation um and it's a, it's a very significant name not everyone gets it it's only those kids that have had their p- fathers pass away mm-hmm. um so um yeah so when dad dad passed away mum mum basically had was left with four four kids um plus this one new kid on the way she was a month and um and then she gave birth to miss eight months later in a in a village town called Goran and we basically went from a Goran um to um starting to travel in in in, in Kakuma um because basically mum had an eye infection and they said that the only place that they she could get the treatment was um to I guess go to Nairobi and Nairobi was the capital city of of Kenya and yeah mum was a bit like well what do I do with a, a newborn baby um, I, I don't know the language. I don't speak English. I don't have transport. Um, and then, yeah, she just kind of made made it work to try and go and get the treatment that she needed for for her eye. And then um, we eventually ended up in Kenya. So, firstly, just before, I mean, I'm, I'm going to interrupt a lot on the way. Don't please. I want to hear the whole story, but there's going to be so many parts of this that I'm just going to want to ask other questions about. Your mother must be. Like this, uh, we've barely started this story, and I'm already in awe of your mother. The idea that she's, you know, tucked four kids under her arm and decided to go to a place that she doesn't know anyone or doesn't know the language to to even get there in the first place seems incredible to me. It is, um, and I think for her, like, um, the my my siblings didn't come at the time, um, just okay. because it was the logistic, the logistics that it took to get all of us over there were. Just, just, just our journey, just our small journey between my mother, my auntie, who I had, because I was a very chubby kid, so she needed help. <laughs> 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 Apparently, so my auntie had to tag along, um, her younger sister, and myself. So there was the three of us, and just the journey to go from there, basically car hop, and and, and all of that. There was, um, we stopped at a at, at a border between Uganda and South Sudan. There was a small village. And we stopped there for a couple of days to wait for a bus that was taking us to the capital. And um, there was a there was a, a like an antelope dropped in the village. Um, and um, yeah, everyone basically dispersed. Um, um, we were, they were just sitting at home, and um, I I was taken by this man, and I was missing for like hours. Um, and my mom was just terrified because she was like, I didn't know where you were. Um, we thought you you were you were dead because we. Like they were just looking for people and bodies and, and everything. And yeah, it was a very, um, um, she recently told me that story. I did a piece for the West Australian and yeah, we sat together with my mom and yeah, she was telling her story. I was just, I just was taken back of how much this woman has actually gone through um, for us to have the life that we have now. And, and yeah, we, we went to Kenya. We finally got there after many months. Um, and I think it was um, yeah early nine late ninety three early ninety two, um, and then mum got the the treatment that she needed, and then my uncle suggested that instead of going back to South Sudan, there was a lot of unrest, there was a lot of conflict still, 
um, why don't you just stay here and, and go and live in the refugee camp and become a refugee so that you can have an opportunity to go to Australia or, um, yeah, all the other countries that are accepting refugees. And mom was like, yeah, I don't think that's a bad idea. So we stayed in Nairobi for a little bit um, and then um, she went back to South Sudan to get my other siblings um, and then my other siblings joined us and I think we were reunited all of us together like years later after being being apart for so many years um, and then yeah we just basically lived in Kenya um, for, for about 11 years really. So 11 years and so when you say a refugee camp like I mean a lot of people when they hear those words you know I think have probably different images in their minds a lot of us probably don't know as much about it as we should know about it could you describe a little of what life is like for a kid in a refugee camp what does it look like you know are you playing with other kids are you living in buildings are you living in tents like what's the setup in in that situation like um, yeah, it's it's really hard to de- describe the refugee life. Um, but for me, as as a young star, I think a lot of, um, as you said, a lot of people in Australia, when they look at refugees, they're like, oh, why are these people living in refugees? Um, you know, like the, in the case of the moment with the asylum seekers, you know, people see them behind bars and they're locked up and all of that. And for us, I've considered myself very lucky that we were not in those the kind of situations. You know, things was things were not easy, but at the same time, you know, the way that the Kenyan government approached the whole, you know, people seeking refuge in their country was phenomenal. You know, they they were like, look, there was there's all these influx of people coming in. Um, we'll give you we'll give you a space in the northern district of of the Trukana district, which is Kakuma, and it basically means it's a Kiswahili word for nowhere. Um, and yeah, the Trukana people who are the locals live there, um, and yeah, they gave us this vast land. It's very dry, um, but it was a place to live. Um, and basically, they just got aid from the UNHCR um, and the World Health Organizations, and they came in and set up basically a camp. And this camp basically catered for people from Congo, Ethiopia, Somalia, South Sudan, um, just pretty much all the neighbouring countries that are neighbouring Kenya, really. Um, and, and for us, we were able to go to school. Um, you know, get you get given a plot um, and you basically build build your mud, mud building. Um, you build your house, whatever, whatever you can afford, really. Um, some people couldn't afford to build the mud, so they had to basically live in tents until they were in a position to be able to build themselves a little home that they can, I guess, find shelter in. Um, my mom is incredible. Um, she was she was she was always a businesswoman and made things happen. Um, and she she even managed to have a hotel at the camp. Um, and yeah, we used to go wake up early in the morning just to go and help mom out prepare breakfast. Um, and yeah, she just she just wanted the best best life for for all of us. And um, I think I get my hustling game from my mom. <laughs> I, have a ten, I, have, I have about ten side hustles going at once um, because yeah, my mom was just always making things happen for us just to ensure we had food on the table. We were going to school. Um, we had clothes. We had Christmas and all that stuff. So. Um, yeah, mum was incredible. Some other families were not as lucky as, as we were, um, but people just made it work. Um, there was obviously aid every month. People were given, um, you know, your your daily amount. You go on basically what they call a cart. And if you have seven people in that cart, you go and line up to get your food from the UNHCR. Um, and you basically, you 
live off those food rations for that for that month and um, and yeah, so that's how the setup was back when I was there. Um, it was pretty, it was a bit stable, um, and it's it's not the same now. Um, Sixteen years later, um, where there's so many difficulties in the world at the moment, and things are just they just seem to be getting worse, and 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 the the crisis there is just getting getting worse and worse. So. Um, yeah, what I always urge people is to donate to people like the UNHCR. I, re- I actually donated the other day, and it was the first time I ever saw a, ref- um, a UNHCR stand, and I got so excited. And I walked up to the guy, he's like, are you going to donate? I was like, of course. And he's like, oh, wow, you're the f- first person that's just volunteering to just donate. And I was like, look, man, these people contributed to who I am today. you know. And I said, you know, somebody publicly donated like me today and contributed to my life years back so um yes that's basically how we how it all started well people who listen to this show know how passionate i am about the unhcr it is uh, one of the things i love about the the work they do in the collection is that most of the people who collect for unhcr if you see someone in the street if they're raising money have, have probably been through that process themselves a lot of people are refugees who've come to australia they've made it to australia if you have time to hear their story they will tell you the story of you know what it has meant to them and i think it is Anyway, it's incredible if you see someone from the UNHCR out in public, I always recommend just take five minutes and at least listen to their story about, uh, you know, how, how they got to be here and why they're so passionate about it. So, okay, so you're living in this refugee camp in, in Kenya for how long? Um, so basically um, about, about 11, 10, 11 years. Um, and I, I think for us we, we started our refugee – because. The, the all the different countries started opening their accepting to come for people to come overseas as as refugees um and and yeah we we applied very early on um the my auntie sent us a form to go to Canada that didn't come through um we mum just did not like the idea of the USA USA I don't know why she was just like we're not going there I don't know anything about it but we're not it just does not seem like a place I want to go um I was a good call mum you did very well (laughs) Well your (laughs) (laughs) Your instincts were like incredible um so yeah Canada fell through Norway because we had an auntie that lived Mm. in Norway and I looked at Norway and I was like mum we would have been living in snow like yeah. <laughs> thank god you didn't pick that too um so yeah australia was the the obvious choice just because when we were living in the refugee camp my uncle um was living next door um he came very early on to australia with his family and he basically became our sponsor and he was basically the reason why we came to australia really so okay so how old are you when you uh, come to australia uh, I was 11, so I was turning 12 that year. So we came, we arrived on the 17th of May, um, 2005. So, um, yeah, I was 11, turning 12 that year. Okay, so you're well and truly old enough to, you know, remember moving to Australia. To What was your experience at that time? Were you excited about coming? Were you scared about going to this place? I mean, you've spent, you know, a decade of your life, most of your life, for your life, in one place as part of one life. And I think, you know, we all understand that particularly when you're a kid, where you live and what you are, you, you see as being normal because you know nothing different, but suddenly you're about to, you know, you're a teenager, you're about to, you know, uh, become an adult and you're moving 
you know, to this life in Australia. Can you remember what you were thinking and feeling at the time? Um, yeah, I, th- I think what a lot of people don't understand is that, you know, they think like, oh, the refugees, you just get given this ticket and you're, you're off to come to this country. You know, you come and take over our place and all that. And it's, I think that's an attitude people need to shift because, you know, for a lot of us, you know, a lot of us don't have a choice but to leave the circumstances that we get put in. Um, and and to look for better, you know, to seek refuge is not a crime. It's it's I think it's a universal right, and people should be able to do that. Um, if things are not going well, if you fear being persecuted, or you're fearing, you know, your the threat in your life, you should be able to, you know, go and ask your neighbor if you can seek shelter there. And and for our family, you know, it was nine years of of going through interviews and proving that we can come and contribute back to the Australian um, society and we had to go and do medical checks, you know, I hate needles we had to get blood tests, all that stuff and it was like some proper extensive like interrogation we were a part of for many months and many years and for us it took nine whole years Um, and then just before we were about to be approved and get given our our visas and our tickets and everything, mum fell pregnant um, with my younger younger brother Bush and he just turned 18 yesterday and um, they gave us the option of leaving him in the camp or having to wait a couple of years to add him in the form and we were thinking like just look at this cute little boy how do you expect us to leave our little brother in a refugee camp with people like we we, we like how is that how is that even possible and there are families that get left in those positions and have to make those decisions to make you know, to make that sacrifice to leave their children behind. And for us, we were not going to do it because we're like, we go through this as a family or we stay as a family. And we're so glad we chose the, the um, yeah, that line to, to to add him in the form so he can come with us because he's he's a beautiful boy now. He's he's 18. He turned 18 yesterday. Um, he is just, he's just an amazing. He's my little best friend. He analyzes all my games for me, so he watches all my <laughs> games. And he gives me the feedback after the game, so he's my little coach. Um, and I just could not imagine leaving him over there. I'm just like, what What do you mean? Um, yeah, and he came, we came here when he was two. And um, and so there's people that have to make those, those, uh, those sacrifices. And I remembered, you know, the decision we had to make as family. Um, and then being given the, the, the license and the, I guess, the green light to finally um, come over there. It was like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. We were given our golden ticket finally. And it was just phenomenal. It was, I was really excited for my mom because, you know, first is this, um, you know, strong um, single mom that's just worked so hard for us to, you know, she had to string together a life story um, had to come up with reasons why we deserve to come to Australia. She had to go through numerous interviews. We just tagged along for the ride, for the for the for the free food, and for the because mum was buying us lunches most of the time. And we just that's why we just went to all these interviews. Um, but yeah, it was just that that opportunity of it was promising a new life. It was promising education, new opportunities for us. And I think that was just what really was what really I remembered from that whole experience. Um, and I think it really set in that, geez, we're going to this country we know nothing about. We just, I remember being told about the Sydney Opera House, 
I don't understand why, but anyways, um, <laughs> I was like, why am I being, I didn't see the Sydney Opera House until I was about 18. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, what was the point of that? I, we, like they didn't even tell us about anything about the place we were going. We're, we're just finding out about the big land things, like, which is fair enough. Yeah. Um, and then we were originally coming to Melbourne initially because our uncle, who was our sponsor, lived here. So you had to go where your sponsor is. Um, but then what had happened is that he, he wasn't able to afford, because there was about 10 of us in the form. Um, so then two other guys jumped on board um, um, to, to basically sponsor us. And when your sponsor lives in a different city, that's where you had to go. Um, so our whole, I guess our whole movement got shifted to Perth. Um, because the guys lived in Perth. So these two relatives um, basically sponsored the rest of our uh, ticket. Um, and then, yeah, I just remembered asking Mama Sakia, we're not going to Melbourne anymore, we're going to a place called Perth. I said, Is, are we still going to Australia? <laughs> <laughs> and she said, yes, we're still going to Australia. I said, I don't care where we end up, as long as we're going to Australia, let's just go. Uh, so, yeah, we, we didn't know anything about Perth. Um, and I just remembered mom going shopping. Um, my sister and I had a, a shared bag. We had these like little bags, like those three dollar bags, like with the painting. It wasn't even a suitcase. I'm gonna need to find it one day. That's the bag my sister and I shared. And mom bought us puffer jackets. Like I remembered wearing a puffer. It was like a red, blue, and a like a like a brownish puffer jacket. For some reason, she was convinced we were coming to the snow. Right. <laughs> and I was just like, "What is happening?" We 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 had to go from Jomo Kenyatta um, Airport, which is in Nairobi, to Dubai, and we got to Dubai. And obviously, the airport inside is like heaven. It was like, "Wow, this is this is a new different world. This is a different world from Jomo Kenyatta Airport." It was the first time I was ever on a plane. Um, and then, yeah, to be sitting in in Dubai for hours waiting for um, for our ne- next plane, you know, to come to Australia, to Australia, basically come to Perth, was just incredible. I was like plane sick. I had, I was just vomiting the whole time. I was a mess. Um, this little kid that's never been on a plane, throwing up. My family's just looking after me. It was I was so miserable until we got to Dubai, and I was just like I was just struck back by just how how beautiful it was. Um, and then we finally transit into our next plane, and then yeah, we landed. It was nighttime. There was all these bright lights, and yeah, it was just just beautiful. I was like, wow, we've come to Perth. And at the time, Perth Airport was very. Like there was a lot of trees around and I was just like, we're in the desert. <laughs> I was like, what's happening? We're in the bush. <laughs> and it was very bushy. It's changed now. 16 years ago, it was very, like, it was very different to what it is now. Um, but I was like, look, it doesn't matter. We're here. Um, and then, yeah, we got our, our host family greeted us. Uh, we met our relatives and yeah, they just took us and that's how our journey started um, here. Uh, we hear a lot about, obviously the story about, about people coming to our country and then what sort of reception they get when they come to our country. Obviously, when we talk about refugees in Australia, there is one of those topics that tends to get very polarised reactions from people. There are those who, 
you know, think that it is one of the greatest things about our country, that it's a country of, you know, immigrants from all over the world, you know, who've come together to make this country. And then, of course, there's some people who, you know, think that we should build a giant wall around Australia and be proud of stopping the boats and that we shouldn't be letting anybody in to share this amazing way of life that we were lucky enough to have ourselves. What was... What was the reception did you feel to you and your family when you first arrived in Australia? Um, yeah, it's um, it's it's a very interesting topic um, because you know when when we speak uh, when I speak about it, like these these are these are people like myself, you know that these are people that are being pushed back, um, you know, like if my family and I were pushed back um, to to be back in South Sudan, I would not have the the life that I have now and the opportunities that I have now and um, and met the friends that I have met and the, the family members and it's um for us we were very lucky we got put in a in a with a host that were basically South Sudanese and they kind of made the whole experience really just really too to easy to set up, settle in and to ease back into it um and then for us we went to to a school that um yeah had a lot of refugee kids they had a they had an intensive English um, center that was very that was dedicated to just you know kids from migrant backgrounds just to try and make the whole schooling um, you know um, introduction to Australia easy. So um, Aramo Catholic College was just phenomenal in in that way because they really bridged that gap for a lot of us who we were just a bit anxious and you know we we didn't speak that great of English and um, for a lot of us it was just a lot of anxiety. Um, for me, I was always a very confident kid, um, so I was like, I think I'll be fine. Um, I just I just need to get into this year eight and I, and I think we'll, I'll be all right. And um, yeah, that's what happened. Um, Two thousand and six, I finally went into year eight and I started my first um, yeah schooling in in the mainstream environment. I met two amazing friends that have just been lifelong mates, um, um, Emma and Suyan. Um, Emma was um, this beautiful Australian, um, Jewish, Canadian girl, um, and then Suyan was just this Malaysian girl. And they, those two just made um, my, my high school, um, I guess, experience so easy um, because I had these two mates that just kind of heard me, listened to me, took me for who I was and it just made school really fun and school was just awesome. I just wanted to go to school every day. I wanted to stay at school overnight and, and all of that just because I had just amazing friends. Um, um, so for, for, for me, I was very lucky. Um, but for a lot of people, they're not, they don't get that position um, where they get, you know, are, are lucky to have good friends that help them, I guess, you know, settle into those environments. So, um, you know, I always say if you, 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 you see, a, you know, a new arrived migrant and their English is not great, you know, they have a lot of anxiety, um, you know, welcome them, go and listen to them. And yes, you might not understand them, but you might understand a word because trust me, your language is foreign to them too. So what makes you think that English is foreign to other people, but their language is not foreign to them? They've known their language all their lives, and we come get put into a new environment that's telling us that English is the only way to, to be, and English is the only way to speak. And it's like, what do you mean? Like, I've been speaking <laughs> Dinka yeah. and Kiswahili all my life. Like, what? There's, there's this, this universal language that is being forced on people, and I feel like, People should choose to want to learn English and choose to powerfully 
you know, not be like made because a lot of people, the reason why people, a lot of people don't want to learn English, I feel a lot of the time, even with my aunties and some of my uncles is that they, they people make them feel guilty mm-hmm. because they speak another language. And it's like, that's not their fault. Like, that's who they are. Like, how are you going to take away somebody's idea? It's like me coming to you right now and going, oh, you cannot speak English. You have to speak French. And you're going to be like, what do you mean? That's kind of what happened to me in, in France, but we'll talk about yeah. that later. Well, I was going to say, I, I, I actually, <laughs> I, I, I learned French in high school and I couldn't speak French. So. <laughs> you and I both, three years of my life, I'll never get back. <laughs> when does sport come into your life? When does, uh, in particular, I, well, I mean, I think I grew up in a country town and one of the things that I've always said about country towns is often that they can be, um, you know, they can present themselves as being places that are not inclusive. And often they cannot be inclusive. You know, they can be old fashioned on ideas around sex and sexuality and race and these sort of things. But I've always said that the converse of that is also true, which is that when people move to smaller communities, they are immediately integrated into those communities because they need to be. You know, like, and, you know, if you're from South Sudan and you go to a tiny town like Hayfield that has like a thousand people, the first thing you do is you get a knock on your door from the president of the local football club who's saying, can you come down to training? We'd love you to come down and be a part of our club. Was that your experience? Was sport like that for you? Um, Sports was a bit different. I was introduced to sport um, in all my schools that I went to Um, when I was in Africa um, we, we, we lived in Nairobi for a small period, um, because it was almost like living in Melbourne, the big city, and then you had to go to your small town. So it was basically that setup where you come to Melbourne for like a month and then you have to go back. So basically that was the setup in, in Kenya. So we came to Nairobi, which was like the, the city and we stayed there for a couple of months and I went to, uh, a refugee school, which is called Sud Academy. And a lot of the people that fund that school are basically NGOs from Canada. Um, and yeah, they came with like soccer balls and all these different sports. And we used to have a, like a little mud, uh, mud like playground at the back. And yeah, we just used to just play. And our teacher was very active. She just loved sports. And um, it was the same. We had a, a primary school teacher, Mr. Albert, I remembered in, 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 in our Kakuma school, uh, yeah, he used to make us do push-ups. I still don't know how to do push-ups. Um, we were forced to do push-ups as our punishment for rocking up late. He was very military-style driven. Like, in Africa, if you basically came to school late and it was an assembly day, you put your hand out and you get whipped. Like, you get a little cane. And it was just the way, the way of life for them. It was the way that, you know, kids were able to utilize the opportunities and, like, it wasn't like here where you just had to pass a grade and it was like all good. I was very shocked about the school system here where it was like, wait, I'm not going to be in class with people that want to be number one. What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> and I quickly realized that and I just fell back and I was like, oh, this is sad because it was very competitive school in Africa. It was like at the assembly when it was like the final exams, all the people that finished high as like, like VC and all that stuff you were basically called up and you're given awards and, and whatnot. And that was like really cool for us growing up. That was, you know, that was, I was a part of the debate club. I was playing sports. And so sports was just always, I was very active as a kid. I was just always on the move. We're playing four squares with my brothers. Um, 
And even though I wasn't allowed, I was still sneaking out, playing next as long as I was at home, um, not going outside. And then when I came to Australia, I went to school, obviously. Um, and then every month, every every term, they did a different sport. So like we cut, rocked up um, term one, and they were doing like basketball, and we were learning basketball. Then they were getting like Perth Wildcats players coming in and doing some clinics with us, which is cool. Um, and then term two would be like footy. Um, one time we went and visited the Fremantle Oval and I vividly remember sitting down and Aaron Sanderland and Matthew Pablish were talking to us, these young kids from an intensive English centre from Aroma Catholic College. And I, me and my big mouth was like, oh, boo-boo, Fremantle doctors. <laughs> and I was just like, Oh my goodness, catch. We're better than this. I was young, okay? I was like, please forgive me. <laughs> but this was the this is this was the crazy mad twelve year old West Coast fan that has just come to Australia while, when the West Coast Eagles mm. were in the grand final back to back and then they won it finally in two thousand and six. So um, yeah, so every term there's always a different sport and I was like, you know what? Um let me just have a crack. And I did. I just played every sport, I learned different sport. I quickly learned um, very, very well. Cricket wasn't for me. That was the one sport I just wasn't like, nah, we're not doing that. Um, but all the other ball sports were great. Um, and yeah, I just, I, I wanted to play soccer. And uh, my teacher was like, you're actually very good at soccer. Why don't you enroll in a, a local soccer club? Um, and I was like, I don't know how that's going to go down with my older brother because it was very, very traditional. He was like, oh, women don't play sports. Um, I don't know, the community perception, all that stuff. And I just wanted to enroll in my local club, which was down the road. And he was like, no, he was very adamant. Like every time I sneaked off and went to soccer training with my, my second brother, I would come back home and I would be banned from everything. The only place I was allowed to go to was church and school. <laughs> I was allowed, to, I was banned from seeing friends, from doing anything. I wasn't allowed to do anything because I was playing sports because because I was a girl. And it went on for about a year and I was just so frustrated because I was just very good at soccer and I just wanted to be left alone so I can play soccer. And mum mom actually stepped in and was like, you know what, I hear people are saying she's really good. And then my second brother was like, Manga was like, look, she trains right next to me and we walk back home. She's, she's actually like really good. Like, let's just let her... Um, he went away, he listened to them, and then he was like, okay, if, if they've advised me, I'll, I'll give you my blessing. Um, so, yeah, he finally let me play soccer. And then a couple of years later, I was on the plane going to China with the all-Australian um, school teams. Um, yeah, we played teams in, from China, Beijing. Um, in Beijing, actually, it was just right before, just right after the Olympics. Um, and we went to the bird nest, um, went to the Great Wall of China. And I was just like, what is happening? Like I was 15, you know, I just arrived to Australia like three years earlier. Um, and I'm in, Ch- I'm in the plane going to China to play sports. And I was like, wow, this is a good life. I really like this. Um, and yeah, that's kind of just how we, it just all went from there. And I just never stopped. And so even as a 15-year-old, because, I mean, look, you know, 15-year-olds, regardless of your experience, you're still 15 years old, which means that there's a whole bunch of, you know, different things. You, you, you're no longer, you know, a child, but you're not quite an adult yet. And so, but you were appreciative of the opportunities you were being given. It was exciting to you. You, you were cognizant enough of what your life had been up until this point to be able to go, this is 
pretty amazing what is happening now. Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, I think a lot of 15-year-olds at, at that point when you're in a different country, a very foreign country again, um, with, you know, you're doing what you love, you know, you. I used to wake up in the morning, the first thing I did was I had my soccer ball in my hand, I'm up all night watching the Champions League, I'm a massive Arsenal fan, and one of my sporting idols was Thierry Henry, and I had admired him because of my brothers, they were so good at soccer, and my older brother was... Um, everyone used to call him Theodore and Henry, and I just wanted to be like them. And they didn't realize that I was at, uh, they were my idols. Um, and the reason why I even played soccer in the first place was because of them. Um, and then I started following Arsenal because of my brothers. Um, and <laughs> it was just weird. I did everything because of my brothers. And, um, and so the relationship that we have now as adults has changed so much because um, of that I was just in all of them and I just really wanted to be like them and I think they really taught me a lot of um you know appreciating appreciating those opportunities and um and and yeah that's the pretty much a reason why I kind of never stopped really okay so how does soccer become AFL like how does <laughs> how does that transition happen um yeah it was a very very interesting transition I played right up until I was about 18 um and yeah the opportunities were kind of just really drying up and and footy soccer is that one that space where you you have to have a lot of connections and a lot of networks and i was at my peak when i was 17 18 i was winning a golden boot um i remembered and i i trialed out of perth glory and um managed to kick two goals that day in the trials and didn't even get picked because i was small and i was not strong and that was the feedback they gave me and um, yeah, I was kind of took, taken back a little bit. Um, and then one of my, I was volunteering at a non-profit organization that basically caters for m- migrants um, called the Edmund Rice Center in Mirabuka. And they were like, hey, um, yeah, why don't you come and play for the boys AFL team? Um, we have all these migrant kids that are learning how to play footy. Why don't you just come and play there? And I was like, okay, cool. So I went down um, and I was like, oh, Cool, these boys are playing and it was put together by the West Australian Footy Commission so I played with them and uh, they made me their captain because first of all I can kick better than them <laughs> <laughs> I was like oh, okay cool then. so they were like no we want a case to be our captain so I was captaining all these boys that were boys from South Sudan Congo Afghanistan just boys from all walks of life and then um, we had a young girl Burundi girl Bella um, who was also coaching us so there was two of us women that were just doing you know powering on doing all these incredible things um, not knowing how significant that that time was going to be in my career and so I just had a beautiful season with them it was like nine games that organized we played different teams during the preseason and then um yeah, uh, a year later, I was like, you know what? I, I think I'm going to play um, football finally. And I, I remembered there was a there was time when I was in year ten, back in school. Um, I was given a flyer by the head of phys ed, and he said, "Why don't you go and trial this football day?" And I said, um, "Okay, cool, whatever." So um, I called East Perth. I went and played one day. I went to training. Actually, my first ever football training session. I was in year ten, I think. And I went down and they were doing a tackling drill. And the tackle drink, drill drill started off with a coach demonstrating. And then the, one of the girls went up to the coach to basically tackle her as the thing. He, she took out the coach. And I was like, I'm leaving. 
what just happened? You just took out the coach. Like, what is happening? And for the rest of the night, the rest of the two sessions, I avoided that girl because I was like, I do not want to be tackled by her and I don't want to die. And, and yeah, that was my first ever memory of football day. Um, and then I was doing athletics coaching with one of my athletics coaches, um, Lindsay, and he took me up to Narogen for, for, for a camp. And then I said, Lindsay, can you please drop me back to Perth um, Saturday morning? I just got to play football. And he's like, oh, football is in soc- footy, our soccer. And I was like, no, AFL. And he was like, oh, okay. I was like, okay, actually I can see that. So he dropped me off um, and yeah, I just rocked up. There was this, you know, young women, um, my my teammates, I haven't met some. I met some, and then I met some of their parents, and they were just phenomenal. Like it was just awesome. We played so many games that day. We didn't win, but we had so much fun. The parents were giving us oranges, and I was just like, "What what drugs are on these parents on? Like, why are they giving us free food and being so nice? Like, what is happening?" Because soccer parents are a bit different. Soccer parents, everyone stays back, and only the team manager deals with everything. But footy fa- families and parents they're very involved they come to the huddle they want to listen they talk to the kids and I was like this is really cool um and yeah I just remembered that sense of belonging and I was like I just want to be a part of that that's what footy for me is that sense of belonging and you're not judged based on your skin color how tall you are how short you are people if you play the game if you understand the game if you can do the things that people love about footy they will love you and I was like that's what brought me back um, in, in 2012 and then uh, yeah finally called um, yeah the the same guy I called in when I was at school um, and I said hey Brendan it's me a catch um, is there a team that's next to me um, here in my house um, he, he was like oh, I've never I, I was like I never thought you'd call uh, he was so excited so he linked me up with the man Lolly Hawks uh, played a season there um, within the first three weeks I got a phone call from the state coach um and he said, "Look, we want you to come and, and trial for the state team. We've been seeing how how good you are. You're just really impressive, and we're very impressed." So yeah, I went there and I was training with them. And then I got picked for the squad, um, and then yeah, we went to Cairns and I had girls like Chelsea Randall, um, Kirby Manley, um, Cara Antonio, um, Kiara Bowers, all these pioneers of our the game right now, the AFLW competition, these girls were in my team. And I was just like, what is happening? Like, I have just started this game, like, like I've just started playing my first women's, in the women's team, and I'm getting picked up in the state team. And I was just like, this is so cool. Um, so, yeah, I went went and played. Did you camps. find that those women were, um, you know, what, what was the attitude of those squads? Were they very much a team about, like, you know, it, 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 making sure that everybody was getting better? Was it a, a time in the development of the game where everyone felt like they were doing something special? Give me a little sense of what was going on at that time. Um, yeah, it, was, it took off real quickly. The media got a hold of my selection and I think I was the first African female selected in a, yeah, a WA footy team there. So there was a lot of hype leading into going to Cairns. Um, but I think a lot of, yeah, it was, I think a lot of us were aware of how special it was um, just because the AFL announced that they were going to start doing the exhibition series and, and all of that. So there was a lot happening around that and there was a lot of, a lot of at play for those women that have been playing for so long. They understood it a lot, a lot better than I did. I didn't really know anything about it. Um, so I kind of just 
rocked up and I was I was in a, I was my roommate was Kirby Bentley <laughs> and I was just like whoa because we were playing at Swan District at the time and I was like wow this this is like this is a legend like this is so cool <laughs> I'm roommates with Kirby Bentley in a state team this is just amazing you know she's an indigenous woman that has just done so much for the game and and i know there's gonna you know she's gonna have a role in coaching one day i think she should because she's just she's phenomenal um she has so much to give and for me she gave me so much knowledge as her roommate but also on the field and um, and then a few years later after that moment the IFL announced that they were going to fast forward the the IFLW competition because they were initially thinking to have it in 2020 which was last season um, and then they were like no we're going to fast it forward to 2017 and so that meant that was an opportunity for for those girls because they were just fresh off the state championships um, and and yeah that's kind of how it all started and then the funny thing is so the same guy that gave me my flyer back in high school my head of my head the head of sport Mr Craig Tom Thomas um, he was then my backline coach at Fremantle wow <laughs> So it was just, it just uh, the world works in in a very mysterious way. So yeah, it's well, it's also amazing to see for those people, the people you know behind the scenes who clearly had a passion for encouraging you know women, identifying women who might be good at this game, you know, encouraging them into the system to also then have the opportunity to, like you said, coach at that elite level, be part of that process for people. It must be as exciting for them as it is for you maybe even more exciting for them in a way because they you know have the experience and the worldview to be able to see it whereas you're a young woman in the middle of it you know in some ways it, it probably feels a bit natural to you I imagine at the time because this is just you you go and play soccer and you're good at soccer you go and play footy and you're good at footy you're obviously a talented athlete you throw yourself into the system and and it's it's just kind of happening for you in this new place this is such an incredible story so so far it feels like everything has been pretty positive were there any setbacks along the way um yeah with the with the sports obviously Get, being delisted um, was uh, was a major setback. But I always say, you know, like I when we dwell on the setbacks, um, you know, there's more setbacks happen. And and my mom recently reminded me this year um, I got dropped in round three, um, and you know I called her and she was like, oh, how's footy going? She's in Africa at the moment, and I said, oh, footy's going great. I'm just not playing this week. And when you tell an African mom you're not playing this week, she thinks you've been cut again. And I had to explain to her that I'm just not playing in the game. I'm still in the team. And she was like, oh, okay, cool. That's all right. You'll be back next week. And I said, yeah, you know, I was I was being a bit. I was just being a bit of a downer, like I was a bit down and just being negative. And my mom goes to me and says, Catch, your whole life's been a challenge. It's been a hurdle since you came into this world. She said, like, this is just another, you know, this is just another setback that's going to, you know, hopefully, like, it's either going to break you it's or you're going to learn something from it and make you bigger and better for it, you know. And I just remembered going, Oh, catch. Come on. There are people that are in worse positions than you are. You've just been dropped from a team. And all the club wants you to get is just to go and get your confidence back. Um, and yeah, I just remembered making a decision there. And my attitude just changed. And I went back to training and I worked just, I worked so hard for that two weeks. And I got my spot back. 
in the team, you know. And I was able to be a part of the Richmond's first AFLW win. And I was a part of the other two wins. And, you know, it was just that conversation with my mom. So, um, yeah, she, she's, she's the one I go to a lot of the time if I just need a little bit of inspiration. Um, yeah, because she's, yeah, she's just an incredible person, my mom. So, yeah. She sounds incredible. Like, I mean, it, just what a incredible person on every level. Like her story, I find, you know, incredibly fascinating in of itself, you know, as well as the story that she's provided, you know, the opportunity for you to have your own story and for your brothers to have their own story and, you know, for the entire family. It's an incredible thing. Uh, tell me you touched upon it and it's not even a topic that I love you know, necessarily bringing up? Because I imagine it's constantly something that you have to, you know, talk to and I wish it wasn't the case. But you spoke about the idea of, you know, experiencing racism, about comments about, you know, the colour of your skin or where you're from. Um, can you talk to me about, you know, how how much that was prevalent in your growing up in Australia? Is it more prevalent as a sports person, is it more prevalent in society than it is within sports? Can you talk to me a little about, you know, racism in Australia? Yeah, um, I think it's a it's an oval, overwhelming, you know, um, conversation. Like for 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 pe- people like myself who are, you know, we're very passionate because we just want racism to just stop. You know, like when I was growing up in Africa, um, I was in the majority you know there was a lot of black people around me and you know there was no such thing as my skin being a problem you know I was just a proud uh, black kid that just was a human being and that was what I knew and it wasn't until I came to Australia there was one incident I we used to live across the road from a petrol station when I used to live in Perth it was my first ever racism uh, my first experience here and I was with my cousin and we're just going to to get some candy in the shop and um yeah we're just crossing and the man this man just rocked up in this big Hilux and he was it was I remember it was white and he just jumped out of the car and he had like a beard and he was just like he was just he just started swearing at us for no reason and we're just like um are you okay like these are just like we're so we're kids and we're like 15 16 at the time we're like what's happening and he started calling us all kinds of names. He was like, you black ass words. You know, if I had a gun, I'll shoot you guys. Go back to where you come from. You know, you don't, you don't deserve to be here. And he just went off. He just went off at us. He just went at it. And we just were like, I was shocked. I have never been shocked because it was the first time in my life where I was like, geez, I'm being attacked for being a black person. Like... Like, how do you even comprehend that as a, as a 15, 16 year old? Like, how do you, how, what do you say to that? How do you, you know, this is an adult that's supposed to know better and he's having a go at us. Two kids that are so, we're helpless in that situation because if we talk back to him, he might beat us up because he's talking about, you know, he's threatening our lives. He's talking about if we had a gun, he will shoot us. You know, things like that are very scary. You know, things like that are what people like myself and others had to escape from. And we're in a place now where you don't feel safe because of your skin color. And it was, yeah, it was it was very sad. It was a very humiliating state to be in and at that time. And I remembered um, the petrol station attendant called us over and he said, come inside. So he locked us inside with him because he was just very scared because we couldn't go back to our house. It was across the road. So then he'd know where we live 
Um, so we didn't want to put our family through any more danger. So we, we kind of just had to stay there until the police came and he, he basically just got in his car and left. And I just had to make a decision for myself that day. And I said, you cannot let that, that man, that person, his selfishness um, to, you know, do him. Cause that, that has the opportunity to dim, diminish you as a human being and, ruin your confidence in your self-esteem and I just was like I'm not going to let him and I was like you just got to come from a place of forgiving forgive him because he po- he's probably angry at somebody else not us and he just wanted somebody to unleash it on and we just happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time and that's what I just had to look at look at it in a way you know and it gave me the room to be able to you know speak up about racism and you know the fact that my aunties and and uncles and people in my community still have to go through it. You know, my mom, when I told her I was moving to Melbourne, she was like, oh, no, like I hear this, you know, there's this thing about Apex gangs mm-hmm. and I don't want you to be involved in all of that, you know. And I had to reassure her that I'll, I'll be fine, you know. And, you know, I'm a 25-year-old whose mom is worried about being labelled as, as part of a gang, you know. This is, these are the things I have to go through every single day. Simple things like going around walking in tracksuit pants, you know. I actively have to make the effort to look nice, to look presentable, so that I am not being stereotyped, so that I'm looking like a responsible person out in these streets so that people don't look at me like, oh, who's that kid? What are they doing in the shop? You know, being back searched constantly when other people are walking out and the, the, the person is like, oh, can I check your bag? And it's like, it's my footy bag. Like, there's nothing in this. Like, what is happening? Um, so, yeah, it's... Um, it's 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 sad but at the same time it's it's an important conversation you know we see all the things with the black lives matter um initiatives that are happening you know these are people's lives we're talking about there are people being killed because of the color of their skin um and you know there's there's indigenous death and custody here because you know the thing in australia i found is that when you talk about racism you are racist that's what somebody told me. They commented on one of my posts that I was apparently racist for speaking about racism. And it's like, how can I be racist? White people are the ones that are being racist to us, people of color. They're being racist to Chinese, Indians, um, you know, and it's like minorities no, have no voices. So we, you know, with my small plot platform i gotta utilize that profile to be able to speak up on my challenges that i face because these challenges are also attached to my community because my community faces these same challenges i'm speaking about so if we don't speak about it as a community especially as australians how do how do we solve this problem that has been around for very very long and because we like to sweep things under the carpet we don't like to to hit the truth We, we i think it's just who we are as, 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 a, as, a, as, a, as a country and we need to change that and it needs to change because we can't say that oh we are a country of immigrants we welcome everybody but then there's minorities that are feeling like they can't catch buses they they don't want to be a part of you know everyday Australian stuff because they don't want to go and have to deal with being racially abused and, and, and all that so um, yeah, so that's that's why I talk about it, and I think that's why more people need to talk about it, so that we can collectively come up with solutions as a whole. What I am interested in about that is that it puts a, an enormous weight on your shoulders, which is that you are not only having to you know have your own career, 
you know, represent yourself as yourself. Uh, but you also become, in a way, a representative for, you know, people who look like you, people who come from the place that you have come from. And there, as you said, there can be so much negative stereotyping, particularly of the Sudanese community in Victoria at the moment, that you are presenting a different version of that story. But that's a huge responsibility for one individual to carry on their shoulders. Are you aware of that responsibility? Um, yeah, it's, it's a huge responsibility. And I always say, you know, um, like my teammates, they get to just play footy. They don't have to worry about becoming leaders. Um, they don't have to worry about all that. But for me, it's not even, I, I can't, I cannot knock it back because, you know, I've got, I got little siblings that are going to go through this. I've got little cousins and nieces and nephews that are going to go through this. So if I, if I'm not a part of the conversations to make solutions and make things happen, then I am a part of the problem because I can't I can't afford to sit back and and watch it happen because this this is why where it develops mental health and and the lot. So you know I would have preferred to just be an athlete and just worry about me being a 28 year old, just worry about the things that 28 year olds worry about. But I don't have that luxury, unfortunately, and. I yeah I got a bigger role to play in my portfolio and um, yeah we got incredible advocates in our community like Nyadol Nyon and 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 other people that have you know have broken through and really have stood up and you know I look at that as a young person and I said yeah if those people are able to speak up then it's going to take everyone you know as especially athletes as well you know and you have indigenous men like Eddie Betts and um, and, and Adam Goods who have stood up and are standing up and I think the more of us African athletes stand up the better it is it makes the conversation louder and it makes it you know amplified so that we can actually come up with concrete solutions and it gets every single other person on board to come with us on the journey because I don't have the solution Eddie doesn't have the solution your doll doesn't have the solution but as a collective with our diverse thinking, our diverse ideas, we all have the solutions to how we can make it a better place for every single person. So, yeah. I have very much enjoyed speaking to you today. I have some standard questions that I ask everyone who comes on the show. So if you don't mind, I'm going to ask you some of those questions. Uh, The first one sounds like quite a big one, but answer it however you would like, which is what do you think happens when we die? Um, I'm a Christian. Um, So I grew up, I, I, yeah, I read the Bible. So I, I think for me, you know, dad, my dad passed away, so I think he's in heaven. So when I die, when my time's up eventually, because all our times are going to be up, um, um, yeah, I think I'm going to go, go to heaven and I'm going to meet uh, my dad and, um, yeah, hang out with God and his people. And your religion has been, um, have you found it a, a rock through some of the challenges that you've had to live through? Um, yeah, especially living in a Kakuma refugee camp. Um, yeah, a lot of us were in church. Um, and yeah, it wasn't until I came to Australia where the Bible and the whole Christianity has been exploited um, all over the Western world. So um, I don't look really deep into that. I look at what, what helped me in my life and what got me and my mom and my siblings through to most of our problems. And for a lot of us, we had to hype, hype, hope. Um, to be able to get to where we are and that's what the bible provided for us and that's what god provided for us so yeah um yeah the religion played a massive role um when when you die hopefully a very long time from now but when you do how would you like to be remembered um 
I've, I'd like to be remembered as somebody who used their voice. Um, and I, I remember one good friend told me sometime that in their tomb, tombstone, they want to be written all, all used up. So, yeah, I want to make sure that all my energy is used up to make the lives of the other people um, better. What's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given? Um, the best piece of advice came from my older sister, Ayor. Um, don't take things personal. Yeah, I think that's been... Um, that's helped in a lot of situations, not taking things personal. Well, what is something that people believe is true that you don't think is true at all? <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, this is a hard one. Um, they believe that I sleep a lot, which mm. is true. <laughs> I, believe, I believe it's true. Um, I'm not a morning person. Um, but I don't believe that's true because the reason why I say that is that at the moment I am a single girl playing football my football commitment don't start until later right I've got no kids to feed. I have no husband <laughs> to feed. So why am I out before the chickens? Right. <laughs> so, exactly. <laughs> that's what I say. Not, you're not, yeah, exactly. You're not sleeping in. Like it, it's, not, it's measured to when you go to work. And as long as you're 100%. up in time to go to work, then everything is absolutely fine. I see that. That makes complete sense to me. Um, can I uh, ask you this question? Because I'm always interested in this. When are you at your best? What, what, what does a catch look like? like when she's at her best um what do i look like when i'm at my best um when i'm focused um when i am about other people um and mainly when i'm around my family and friends and those people that matter to me but then yeah when i'm talking about something that's very personal and passionate a passionate thing um, that you know tries to move conversations forward that's when i'm at my best and can I ask the opposite then? What what do you look like when you're at your worst? When when you look at your life and you think, oh, this is this is definitely not me. I not me and the me that I like to be. Um, yeah, when I'm being lazy, um, when everything gets too much, because there's times where everything just becomes too much. Meetings, um, I've been ad zoomed, um, <laughs> um, like all the different commitments has become too much and then I just get into my shell and I'm just like now nah, I'm just going to sleep for eight hours and during the day not at night sleep at night and then sleep take another nap during the day so yeah that's when I'm at my worst uh two more questions and then we're done thank you so much for doing this today I have really absolutely loved this chat um so uh, the first one is if I had a magic wand and I could give you any ability in the world you don't have to become good at it you just are immediately good at this thing uh what would you love to be really good at um I'll just really love to be really good at ending conflict and war um yeah just be, get people to a place of you know, I'm learn. I'm currently learning in my health, health and well-being class that, um, yeah, a lot of a lot of the you know the health detriments of people uh, around the globe are, you know, to do with war that leads to health problems and, um, you know, the it's 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 sad. Like it's actually sitting in that class and listening to all that examples, and I'm like, wow, my country is one of the examples in that class because. They have all the conflict and the war and the unrest and all the things that are happening. Um, so, yeah, if I had the magic wand, 
to be really good at um yeah ending war and just getting peace um yeah into people's lives so that people can have the opportunity to have the freedom to live freely and speak freely because at the moment people can't do that where I come from so yeah uh one final question i have a time machine that can take you to any point in the future any point in the past you can visit your own life you can change something you can give yourself some advice you can ignore your own life completely and just go and visit some place in history if you'd like to do that where would you like to go on the time machine oh i would love to go back to um yeah a lot of people would probably go to like some some periods that have nothing to do with them but I'm very family oriented and I'm just really intrigued about my granddad and my my father who I never got to meet and they're just like incredible people and I've learned so much about them through people um who've told me their stories so yeah I would have loved to not even like just be be a participant and just met them and be a part of the movement and the things that they did when they were alive so yeah this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to do this today. It has been incredible. I wish you all the you know best with not only your AFLW career, but all your side hustles, all the various <laughs> side hustles. <laughs> I'm sure that we are just going to be seeing so much of you uh, as part of this country in the future. I you know I I hope that you know, in the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years, you know, you continue to be the important voice in our community uh, that you that you are and that you are a pathway for so many others who are going to come after you as well. So thank you so much for doing this today. I, I truly appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Willosophy. We would love for you to check out some of our other episodes, including this fantastic episode with Tony Armstrong earlier this year. Here is a little snippet of Tony's episode where he speaks about his experience playing football and everything that came after that. My, my philosophy is basically like if you want to do it or you think you want to do it, you're in for a penny, in for a pound. You fucking, you work hard. You, you, you bust your ass and it's amazing how many opportunities come up when you're in that mindset because you see them, you see them there. You go, ah, oh, actually, yeah, that is good for me. That is good for me. And, you know, obviously you can't say yes to everything, but I think it's this kind of mindset where it's almost no fear. Obviously there is ultimately deep down a fear of not being good enough and a fear of all that, but I don't let that stop me trying. Remember, you can follow Willosophy on Instagram at WillosophyPod. We post all of our amazing guest portraits by our artist James Fosdyke there. And you can support us on Patreon, as I said at the top of the episode. And if you want to hear some of our other shows, head to tofop.com. We do a bunch of shows on this network, so it would be great to have your support. We'll catch you next time.